Okay, well, we are continuing our study in the book of Zechariah. Let's just bow our hearts one more time as we just come to God's word together, shall we? Father, we ask for you to speak to us this morning here in this place. Lord, to un- give us understanding of the things that we look at this morning in your word. Lord, we pray that it wouldn't really be academic, just seeing how these things fit together historically and prophetically, but Lord, that we would see your heart in these things. That Lord, we would leave this morning being more overwhelmed by your amazing grace. That we would recognize, Lord, that our lives have been, as it were, plucked out of a fire. And that you have saved us. And you've promised us a wonderful future with you. So Lord, we just give you this time. Speak to our hearts through your spirit, we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. So going through the book of Zechariah, we've seen that the first section of the book really deals with these visions that Zechariah seems to receive all in one evening. The book starts with this kind of exhortation to the nation to repent, to be obedient, whereas Haggai had stirred the hearts of the people into the rebuilding of the temple. Zechariah speaks to the heart. In the New Testament, seven times we're told that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, that wasn't true in that sense for the Jews in the Old Testament. It's something that is uniquely given to Jews and Gentiles who are part of the church. The Holy Spirit comes and indwells us, and we are now the temple, the place where God's Spirit, God's presence resides, which is just overwhelming. We can't get our heads around that. But nevertheless, Zechariah just encourages the people to, to look at their spiritual life, to build the spiritual life. So not just this temple that's being built now, as these things are being said, but their own walk with the Lord. And just as a, a physical building takes effort, so the work in our lives requires us to be devoted, committed to the Lord, to allow him to do that work in us. And these eight visions then go through. And we've seen the first three now that we've looked at. We're going to go in to look at the fourth one, uh, Joshua the high priest, now in chapter 3. Just to remind you of what we've seen so far, because in a sense these visions give us almost a panoramic of the future of Israel from that point, but encompasses the church so much as well. What we see initially is this heavenly army that are sent to survey the earth. And what they find is disturbing because they see that the world is resting or indifferent to Israel's plight, just as it was then, it is now. In fact, it's not changed through the last two and a half thousand years. And, and the idea is, and they're not just resting and it's all wonderful, it's really bad because they're, they're carelessly, uh, they're without regard, uh, false security, arrogantly confident, boastful. And they're saying, as it were, peace, peace. Jeremiah uses that expression and Paul again uses that idea in First Thessalonians, speaking of how the world is ignorant of where we are spiritually. And then we see this vision of the red horseman, which is clearly identified as being the second person of the Trinity, you and I know as Jesus, standing in the midst of Israel. And the expression is in the bottom, and as we said, Chuck Minister in his commentary puts it this way, he was located in the hollow in a deep place. That's the idea of the Hebrew there. This was a low time in the nation's history, a period of deep humiliation, the times of the Gentiles. But behind Jesus, there's this army. So Israel were in a bad place. They'd come back from exile. There was a lot of discouragement because of the things that were going on around them, this uh, constant 
threat from those the Samaritans and others that were trying to stop them rebuilding. Ezra, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah deal with that in detail. But behind Jesus, there's this army, these red horses and speckled horses, white horses, whether we've got three groups or, or whatever, but it's clearly an army. Uh, and possibly the idea is that it was blinding to the sight. Certainly at the second coming, uh, the brilliance of Jesus uh, will consume Antichrist. As a result of this, we then get these words of comfort that are spoken to Israel, that the Messiah is going to come to Jerusalem, that the house of the Lord is going to be built again. That would be the fourth temple, not just the one they were building, but one yet future. The Jerusalem's boundaries would expand, and we see that expanded uh, in the third of these visions. And that God will once again choose Jerusalem. And again, we looked in detail last week at that because we see this man with the measuring line. Now, certainly, Zechariah was a type of one who was going to come with this idea of a measuring line. Typically, when you get out your tape measure, you're about to do some work. And the idea was that Zechariah was part of this rebuilding program in Jerusalem. But it was just a foreshadowing of what the Lord was going to do. And we have the benefit of history now. We can look back and we can see that in 1867, a man by the name of Charles Warren went to Israel, to Jerusalem. It's an incredibly significant prophetic year. So many things occurred in that year. It was the year that the Ottoman Empire started selling the land. Jews started rebuying and taking possession of the promised land once again. It was the same year that Mark Twain visited and almost verbatim quotes the words that Moses said would be quoted by a stranger visiting the land. All in this one year. Why was it significant? Well, it was the seventh jubilee from the last transference of the land of Israel. So from the point that the Ottoman Empire took control of that land, it was the last time that land had changed ownership. Typically, this is the 50th year, the year of jubilee, the land returns to its owner. But of course, because of what we looked at in Leviticus, we're told there very clearly that if after God's initial judgment on the nation, they didn't repent, God would multiply their punishment seven times. And so we find this isn't one of those, well, does it work? It does work. It's history. We can look back. And can we see that seven times 50, 350 years later, brings us to 1867, this exact year, when everything started to happen. There is so much more than I've been able to share so far as we've gone through this. But we're going to keep moving because we want to get on to this next vision. But it really is worth getting into and doing the study of these things. It is breathtaking uh, how many things the Lord engineered. And from that point, every 50th year from 1867 has been hugely significant in terms of what the Lord was doing. It set this chain of events in motion, the Balfour Declaration, the whole re-establishment of the nation of Israel. And then, of course, the, the 100 years on from that, so 50 then plus 50, we get to 1867, sorry, 1967, and it's the year that Jerusalem is recaptured by the Jews. None of these things were random. Even taking us up to 2017, that particular year, again, the whole idea of the, the Jubilee, there was the blowing of the shofar. This, this trumpet, as it were. And there's a returning of that which had been lost. And in 2017, a man by the name of Trump, yes, no coincidence, 
declared that Jerusalem was to be the capital of the nation of Israel. And the embassy, the American embassies moved back. Everything happening according to God's plan and purpose. No coincidences in these things. But we move on to then chapter 3. And in chapter 3, we get this fourth vision that Zechariah has, all in this one night, seemingly, of Joshua the high priest. Now, I'm just going to read through uh, the text here. Um, And you'll notice my fonts have messed up. I had to rebuild my computer, so ignore that. Let me just read the text anyway. So this is going to read through uh, Zechariah chapter 3, and then we're going to go back and we're going to look at it in more detail. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that has chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spoke unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. This is Zechariah seemingly speaking at this point. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt keep my course. And I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee. For they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, Upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the engraving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. Okay, so that's this chapter, just a short 10-verse chapter. So you're all thinking, well, this is good. We'll get home in time for lunch today. Well, hang on, there's a lot to go through here. So let me first of all just give you a few comments from some of the the commentators. Uh, Adam Clark, a commentator who I uh, very much like and respect, he says this. So just trying to understand what we've just been looking at there in those verses. While the Jews were rebuilding their temple, their adversaries endeavored to stop the work. And again, Ezra, Nehemiah, you read all about those things. But the vision is therefore calculated to give them the strongest encouragement that God, after plucking them as brands out of the fire or captivity of Babylon, would not now give them up but would continue to prosper and favor them, and that notwithstanding the interruptions they should meet with, the work should be finished under the gracious superintendence of providence. And the high priest, clothed in his pontifical robes, would soon officiate in the Holy of Holies. So Alan Clark's just paraphrasing. He's saying, you know, this was to encourage them, saying, carry on. Yes, you've just come back from Babylon. You're discouraged. You're, as it were, as a brand plucked out of the fire. But, you know, God is going to do this work. And the idea here of Joshua, the high priest, who was the high priest at that time, this individual by the name of Joshua, not, of course, the Joshua that we read about following on from Moses. This is much, much later on. But this, this Joshua, his high priest, and seeing him clothed in his robes and so on would have been encouragement to them to say, the Lord really is going to do this. This is going to happen. Adam Clark goes on and says that the subject is then 
So kind of the second part is, is by an easy transition applied to a much greater future deliverance. So this is all, there's always a double, re- well, a, often a double reference when we're looking at these scriptures. There was something that was applicable and real at the time, but it pointed forward to something that was going to come. Just like the, the man with the measuring line, we mentioned it earlier. So again, Adam Clark says, the subject is then by an easy transition applied to a much greater future deliverance and restoration of which Joshua and his companions delivered now are declared to be figures or types for that the Messiah or branch, the great high priest typified by Joshua, would be manifested. And like the principal stone represented in the vision, become the chief cornerstone of his church that the all-seeing eye of God would constantly guard it, and that by his atonement he would procure for it peace and pardon. So what Adam Clark's saying is that although there was a real event historical that was taking place, and the vision was partly to encourage the Jews in that, it was also looking forward to something that was to come with what the Messiah would accomplish. Bridgeway Bible's commentary says this, Zechariah then has a vision in which he sees Satan accuse the high priest Joshua, And therefore, the people he represents, because of course the high priest represents the people, of being unclean. Because of their long exile in idolatrous Babylon, they are no longer fit to enter God's presence. In other words, Satan is hinting that the people were wasting their time building the temple since they are unclean. No sacrifices that they offer there will be acceptable to God. There is so much we can draw out of this chapter that speaks about our own walk, our own relationship. And Satan does just that, does he not? He tries to discourage you, tries to say, you're not good enough. You're not worthy. You don't have the resources necessary. But then God replies, this is again Bridgeway Bible Commentary saying this, uh, God replies that he has not cast off his chosen people. Their time of exile in Babylon has been his punishment on them because of their sin, but now he has saved them. He has snatched them from the hand of their enemies, brought them back to the land, and cleansed their sin. Now he's going to set up the temple and its priesthood for them once again. So far from being what Satan was trying to imply, that God has finished with them, they might as well give up, God is saying, no, 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 this is just the beginning of something wonderful. There's four levels of meaning potentially here that we're looking at. Firstly, there's the encouragement for Zechariah, Joshua, Nehemiah, Ezra, all those that are returned from Babylon at that time. There's also an allusion here, we'll see, to the coming day of atonement when Israel's sins will be purged by the Messiah, that's Yeshua, their high priest. There's also the, the broad picture here that salvation, because of the Jews, has come to the whole earth in a day. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then also we see this allusion to the coming millennial reign of the Messiah, who's referred to here by a number of titles, actually, but the branch being one of those titles. So we'll look at these things as we go through. Let's jump in then. Let's go back to the beginning, and we're going to go through where we're looking at a number of scriptures as we go through this. So firstly, and he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. As I said, Joshua was the first high priest after they'd returned from the exile. He's of that Levitical line that had come down. His grandfather had served as a high priest. And now he's in this role, having come back, uh, or the nation having come back from Babylon. 
Joshua or Yehoshua means the Lord saves. That's what the name means. You're, you're familiar, of course, the fact that Hebrew names all have meanings. English names have meanings. We've forgotten a lot of them. Barry apparently means sharp, spear-like. I think that's appropriate. But Joshua, it means that the Lord saves. The Greek, of course, is Jesus. That's the name. So it's no coincidence that this individual happened to be serving. He was the, of the line of, of Levi. He was the right person of the, the, to be the high priest. But he just happens to be called Joshua, which is also the name of Jesus. So straight away, you see this, this double picture being painted for us. Hebrews tells us, of course, that Jesus is our high priest. And of course, the high priest represented the people to God. Joshua was doing that here in this vision that Zechariah is having. Jesus, of course, does that for each one of us. And of course, it's the reverse is true, that Jesus represents God to the people. Joshua was representing God to the people. So that, goes, that relationship goes both ways. Now notice Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, the angel of the Lord is an expression that we see throughout the Old Testament. Always seen as an Old Testament appearance of the second person of the Trinity, or Jesus Christ as we know him. It's always God manifest in bodily form. You think of Samson's parents, the angel of the Lord appears to them. Of Gideon, the angel of the Lord appears to him. Hagar. And on every occasion, it's not just an angel. Clearly from the context, we realize, we recognize that this is God manifesting himself in a form that people could see. Exactly the same as the incarnation. Exactly the same as what took place in Bethlehem, that God sent his son, sent Jesus, to be born into this world, the manifestation of God in human flesh. Interestingly as well, we're told in John 5, 22, that all judgment has been committed to the son. It's interesting because in one sense, Joshua here is a representative of Jesus. So you've got almost Jesus standing here as the high priest representing the people, standing before the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus. It's almost, it's kind of, you kind of, whichever angle you look at, you're looking at Jesus. But of course, all judgment has been committed to the Son as Jesus is standing there in this picture. He's the one to whom judgment has been committed already. And then we're told that Satan was standing at his right hand to resist him. Well, in Revelation chapter 12, Verse 10, we're told that one of the titles of Satan is the accuser of the brethren. That's what he does. He just accuses. He tries to tear down. He doesn't build up. He just tries to destroy. Be careful of people you meet who will tell you they're Christians who do nothing other than criticize other believers. Yes, there is a place for accountability within the Christian church, and it's important. And there are numerous scriptures that give us that remit. But there's also very clear, defined ways in which those things should be done. In Matthew 18, for example, we're given a very clear process to follow if somebody is out of line. But it's not our job to go around and just criticize other people continually. It's sad how often we see Christians criticizing other Christians and moaning and complaining. But none of us have got it all together. None of us understand everything. We are different. 
And, you know, I think it's a real blessing that we have lots of different churches, lots of different types of churches. The world looks on and almost sees it as a, well, they can't agree. No, it's not that at all. We're different people. We all like different types of food. We don't all have to eat the same thing. And spiritually, some people need different things at different times. And there are a lot of people that will criticize the likes of Hillsong. And they'll tell you that it's all very sensational and it's all about the lighting and everything else. And yeah, there's an element of that. That's true. But I really believe the Lord has blessed the Christian church because of the worship and the music that's come out. People are very critical of groups like Bethel in America. And yeah, there's some things that have been said that are not good. You have to be discerning. But we're all told to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And yet there's been individuals that have written some songs, and we've sung some of the songs that have come from there. That have been a real blessing. You know, people have been stirred of the Lord to to write some things, some expressions of their hearts that have been a real encouragement to the body of Christ. You know, and I grew up in the Anglican church system. And I'm really grateful that I did. Marla, on Friday evening, uh, along with Esther and Namita, went over to Winchester Cathedral. Um, there was a service, it was a jubilee celebration for the Queen. And there was lots of young people from various different uh, groups that children, young people were involved in. Marla, Esther and Amita were there representing Girls Brigade, which they're, they're part of locally. Uh, and Marla had the opportunity of going and uh, reading one of the prayers um, during the service. And it was, it was kind of, I say, televised. It was like streamed live on YouTube. And there's a lot of people there. And Connie was at home with Joy and I, and we sat and we watched on, on YouTube, watched it live. And Connie was asking questions about, you know, why are they doing this? And the, the robes that the, uh, the bishop was wearing and so on. And I was talking to her about, you know, where these things came from. And, you know, and interestingly, there's, there's a lot of really good stuff. There's also a lot of error that's crept in over the years. But, you know, one thing that you will find, generally speaking, if you go into a traditional church, is a reverence for the Lord that we lack. And I'm not, this isn't a criticism. When we get together on a Sunday, we come in and we chat and it's lovely. But typically, if you go into an Anglican church or a traditional church, you'll go in and you'll sit down and it's very quiet and people sit there and they pray. And maybe people don't understand. They haven't seen some of the things that the Lord has, by his grace, allowed us to see in his word. But there's a sincerity. My point is, we need each other. We need to encourage each other. We need to bless each other. And I am hugely grateful to God for the things he's allowed me to see from his word. And I wouldn't want to be anywhere else than other in Calvary Chapel doing what the Lord has called me to do and being able to be part of a group that just week by week teaches God's word. Because there's a lack of that in this nation. And so many churches have gone astray and they've gone down all sorts of roads embracing paganism, idolatry, immorality, and trying to make those things almost normal. And yes, there is a, a, a huge temptation to be relevant. A dreadful word from a Christian perspective. So we have to be discerning. And we don't just accept anything, but we also need to be careful that we don't just criticize everything either. We need to have a balance. Satan, accuser of the brethren, that's what he does. That's where that idea comes from. 
John 8, verse 44 tells us he's the father of lies. He lied from the beginning. He continually lies. He seeks to discourage and cause to doubt God's word. He was doing exactly that in this vision, standing, as it were, and accusing Joshua, saying you're not worthy, you don't deserve. And of course, back in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, this conversation with Eve, did God really say, you know, can't you, surely it'll be okay if you eat from that tree because you'll become wise and you'll be like God. And Satan's very, very subtle. We're told in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And that's what he does. He tries to find a way to devour us. And people have often made the comment that, yeah, Satan's a roaring lion, but he's toothless. And in one sense, that's kind of true because, of course, Jesus has defeated the power of the enemy. Jesus has declared victory over sin and death and Satan and so on. But at the same time, he can still discourage us. That roaring can sometimes intimidate us. And we're told to be sober, be vigilant. You know, the idea of being sober, it's thinking. That's the idea here. And we're told to resist steadfast in the faith. Notice how we're to resist. We're to resist steadfast in the faith. That's trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. We're not alone going through the trials and the challenges that we go through. But hold on to Jesus. And notice the response here. And the Lord said unto Satan, the Lord rebuke thee. Now actually I checked this to see. It's exactly the same word for Lord used in both of these uh, occasions here. It's Jehovah, Yahweh. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke thee. Now it may seem kind of a a strange uh, idea here. It's similar to what we saw in verse 1. Jude verse 9, we have a similar reference uh, here. In Jude verse 9, you're familiar probably with the, the account, but we're told there that Michael was contending with Satan about the body of Moses. Bizarre thing to have a debate about in the first place. You need to go back and listen to our studies in Jude to see what we, we said at the time. I, there's some fascinating reasons to why that may be the case. But nevertheless, the point is that Michael, who is an archangel, technically the same rank as Satan, doesn't bring against Satan a reviling, a reviling accusation, but he says, the Lord rebuke you. In a sense, what we see here is that the matter in hand is passed directly to the highest authority. There's a lot of Christians that almost seem to kind of poke fun at Satan and see it as almost like a fun thing. And, you know, we need to be a little bit careful. Even Michael shows respect. And here, the Lord said unto Satan, the Lord rebuke thee. goes to the highest level there is. That's where the rebuke comes from. It doesn't come from us. Romans 8.31, of course, reminds us, is God before us and who can be against us? We don't need to fear Satan. He is a defeated foe. He's still dangerous, but he's defeated. 
And it's reiterated that God himself has chosen Jerusalem. Notice the second part of the verse here, that even the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Do you remember what we saw in the the early vision? The Lord would again choose Jerusalem. And here we have the statement following on from what we saw last week, the man with the measuring line, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. It's amazing how much of the Christian church has fallen for this lie that God has finished with Israel. God still has a plan and purpose for the Jews. That's never changed. And this book is a great book to get anybody that has this notion of replacement theology. Just get them to read this book in context. It's, it's, it's clear that God has not given up and will not give up on the Jews. He has a plan and a purpose for them. And notice it again. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem, uh, that has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke thee. Okay, that's the, the God that we're serving, that's the God that will rebuke Satan. The God that ultimately will crush Satan under his feet. And then that that statement, is this not a brand plucked out of the fire? Or literally pulled out before it could be consumed? The idea, kind of a a piece of, a long piece of dry grass or something that's in the, the fire. You know how quick grass burns? I can tell stories of my youth and how much I loved fire. Um, But grass burns really quickly, doesn't it? Again, this piece of grass, effectively, just pulled out before it can be burnt, before it can be consumed. And of course it applies to those that were pulled out of Babylon. God had allowed them to go there for judgment because they hadn't kept the Sabbath to let the land rest every seventh year. And so God says, you owe me 70 years. They went there for that duration. But then God brings them back. But only a remnant, 50,000 or so, is all that returns from Babylon. So in one sense, this applies directly to that situation. And those reading this at the time Zechariah wrote it or saw these visions would have seen it that way. But it also applies a future tense to the nation of Israel. Okay, If you've got your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 27. Just quickly look at a few of these verses because it's instructive. Isaiah 27, picking up verse 13. And it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown, and they shall come which were, notice this, which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria, the outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. Right In Matthew 24, if you flip over to Matthew 24, you'll find that Jesus quotes that verse that we've just read. In Matthew 24, pick up verse 22. He says, Then if any man shall say unto thee, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. Oh, sorry, I'm just, uh, that was 23. Verse 22. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days should be shortened. And then go down to verse 31. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. Notice, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Israel will be yet future at a point they are about to be consumed. Antichrist will cause the nations of this world to gang up on Israel. They'll meet in the Jezreel Valley or the Valley of Armageddon. And Israel will, by this point, have fled 
to Edom, to the area we believe of Petra and Edom. And they'll be about to be destroyed. They'll cry out to their Messiah. Hosea chapter 5 and 6 speak of that as well. And at that critical moment, Jesus, their Messiah, will return. They will realize at that moment that Jesus is their Messiah. And Jesus will deliver them. So it applies in regard to Babylon, looking back. It applies to what is yet to come, looking forward. And God will not let Israel be destroyed. But it also applies to every believer that has put their faith and trust in Jesus. This idea of being plucked out of the fire. Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 2. I just love, love this particular chapter in the New Testament because it's just, it says everything. Let's just read from the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2. It says, And you has he quickened, that's made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. That was the situation we were in. We were, as it were, in the fire. We were about to be consumed. It says, where and in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time, but we were all in the same boat in times past, and in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, notice this, the children of wrath, even as others. That's the position we were in. We were subject to God's wrath. We were, as it were, in the fire, about to be consumed. And then we read the two probably most amazing words in the whole Bible. What a statement that is, but I really believe that. Verse 4, but God. There is no one else that could have done this. It had to be God. No human, no leader of any world religion or whatever or philosopher. It had to be God himself. And then one of Paul's great parentheses here, he just throws it, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherein he loved us, even when we were dead in uh, sins, has quickened us. So the statement really is, but God has quickened us together with Christ. By grace, you are saved. We were in that predicament. We were about to be consumed because of our iniquity, because of our sin. Read the rest of the... That that part of the chapter is is just brilliant. This this statement of where we were, that we were cut off. We were not part of the, the commonwealth of Israel. We were destined for judgment. And God steps in by his grace and we're saved. Just a wonderful statement. Verse 3, we carry on. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. Isaiah 64, verse 6, speaks about our righteousness being as filthy rags. The Hebrew is, effectively, that in Isaiah 64, verse 6, it's used menstrual cloths. That's the picture that is given to us in the Hebrew. That's saying that's what our righteousness is like. All of our works, our efforts, the best we can bring, when we try and do things for God, be it you know, our service or whatever we think we can bring, our devotional times. Whatever we think makes us right with God, God says, that's offensive to me. But this statement in verse 3 is even worse. Joshua here representing the people in type Jesus was clothed with 
filthy garments. Now, the English doesn't explain really what this is saying. The idea is that these garments weren't just dirty. They were offensively dirty. They were, as it were, covered in excrement. That's, again, the idea in the Hebrew. One commentator put it this way, they were offensively smelly. You you can see why Satan is standing there trying to condemn and saying, how can this disgusting, filthy person be allowed into God's presence? How can they be blessed? Of course, this is a picture of Jesus who on the cross took our sin upon himself. You know, we all tend to think we're okay by our own standards. We often think other people are bad, but we tend to, you know, by our standards, we often think we're not that bad. But we won't be judged by our standards. We'll be judged by God's standards. And by God's standards, we are, as it were, covered in excrement and coming before God. The difference is, that Jesus took upon himself all of our sin. Every hateful thought, every lustful thought, every thought of bitterness or malice, everything Jesus took upon himself. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. We said earlier in our service how incredible it will be in eternity to praise God. And I believe that when we get there, we will start to understand just how big a gulf existed between us and God. And just how incredible it was what Jesus accomplished at Calvary. Verse 4 goes on. And he answered and spoke unto those that stood before him, saying, Satan kind of pouring the condemnation on here. But then we have this statement. Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee. And I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. How can a just God do that? I think it was Socrates, very insightfully, once said, How can a just God forgive sin? How can God, if he is just, say as we see here, will I cause thy iniquity to pass from thee? God can't just ignore sin. That would be like a a judge in a court of law saying, well, we'll let you off this time. Could you imagine the the family of the, the victim Say, well, that's not fair. That's not justice. How can you let him go? There's got to be justice. There's got to be judgment. Of course, the, the, the justice occurs because Jesus paid the price. Jesus takes all of our sin upon himself. And so he's there representing us. And we all get clothed, as we see here, in a change of raiment. Now, this is speaking in one sense of Israel and what God will do future tense for Israel. This will happen at the time of the, the day of atonement that is coming, when they will have their sins cleansed. They will recognize Jesus as their Messiah. 
their eyes will be opened again spiritually. But it also speaks of the whole world. Salvation is the same for Jew or for Gentile. Only through Jesus Christ. And we get to wear this wonderful change of raiment. There's a lot in scripture about these things. I'm just going to turn to Matthew 22. Turn with me if you can. Matthew 22, picking up verse 11. You probably know the account. There's this kind of wedding supper that's going on. And they send out to bring people in. And some people say they can't come or don't want to come and so on. It's going to pick up uh, verse 10. It says, So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And it speaks of us, all brought in. But when the king came in to see the guests, this is verse 11, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. He was wearing his own clothing, his own apparel. And he said unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. You see, if you try and go before God based upon your own works, you'll have nothing to answer. A great example of this is with Cain and Abel in the Old Testament. Yes, Cain was a farmer. Yes, Abel was a shepherd. But Abel didn't offer a sheep because he was a shepherd. He offered a sheep because God had already ordained that it was through the shed blood of an innocent sacrifice that atonement would be made. Cain chooses to ignore that. He decides he's going to bring the best of what he could do. Now, you and I would look at Cain, you look at the produce, you see the hard work he put in, the sweat of his brow and so on, producing this wonderful food and this lovely table of food that affects what he presents to God. And God says, sorry, that's your effort. If you come to Jesus, if you come to God, it has to be through the shed blood of an innocent sacrifice to atone for our sin. That's just a typical example of what we try and bring on our own. But verse 13, Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Interesting verse that's worthy of more study some other time. But you see, the picture there is that the, at the wedding, the garments will be provided by the host. It's no different with us. If we want to go to this wedding, we can't go clothed in our own righteousness, our own clothes, because it's just filthy rags. Or, as we've already said here, worse than that. And I said, let them set a fair mitre upon his head. Now, firstly, just David makes a comment in Psalms, blessed is the man unto whom, whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And Zechariah kind of picks up on that here because Zechariah seemingly in his own vision steps forward and says, and I said, this is like really exciting. This priest who was clothed in this this filthy garment has his garments changed. He's put this wonderful clothing upon him. He's now accepted. Satan's got nothing to say. There is no dirt upon him. He's now clothed in the righteousness of God. And Zechariah seemingly getting this saying, let them set a fair mitre upon his head. In other words, he's now worthy of honor. Those that, this um, service on Friday evening, again, we saw the, uh, the clergy with these uh, mitres, with their hats on, to symbolize humility and so on. 
But, you know, they, they, they were to symbolize authority. And in this case, that's exactly what Zechariah is, is saying here. So they said, if they're mighty upon his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord stood by. Now, we likewise are going to be crowned with this honor that we haven't earned. It's purely because of God's grace. Revelation 4 and 5 speak of the crowns that will be given to the church when we get to heaven. We are, in that sense, as a royal priesthood. There's a number of parallels we could draw here. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, it speaks of Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Psalm 118, verse 23, it speaks of the one who was rejected by the builders, the stone that was rejected, now being exalted. Jesus, because of what he's done, is exalted to the highest place. And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts. And I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. Because of time, I'm not going to read through those scriptures, but Isaiah 42 verse 1 speaks again of the millennial reign of Jesus. It speaks of the one crowned with honor, the one that God is going to acknowledge and exalt. Luke one thirty two speaks about the Messiah sitting on the throne of David. I will read Daniel 7 verse 13 and 14 just because it's, it's great. Uh, Daniel... Let me just find it. So Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Let me read there. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there were given to him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. That is what will be given by the Father to Jesus. And here this statement, of course, in type is speaking of Joshua, the priest at that time, but it's really looking forward ultimately to Jesus and God promising him these blessings. Here now, Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. That should be the bit that's highlighted there. The text is skewed, so that's why it looks odd. The branch is the word in Hebrew, uh, and it's 18 times in 12 verses it occurs. You can see the references there. If you want a little bit of fun, this will be on the website later. Go to the, the scriptures, look at those references, and see how it applies to Jesus. Every one of the, some, you see sometimes twice in the same verse it, it, it's used. In fact, twice in this verse it's used. The I will bring forth is that Hebrew word, semek again. My servant, the branch. So we've got the same word occurring twice. It's shooting up, being, being, uh, growing up. But this is a, an expression that's used of Jesus in scripture. Of the one who is going to grow. Jesus, as it were, came out of the earth and he's going to fill the earth with his glory. And then another allusion here to the Messiah. For behold, the stone that I've laid before Joshua, and upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the gravings thereof, said the Lord of hosts. Throughout Scripture, stones are an idiom of Jesus Christ. Numerous Scriptures, Psalm 118, we mentioned a little while ago, the stone that was rejected has become the capstone. In 1 Corinthians 10, 
Paul likens the rock that was in the wilderness to Jesus. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 34, once again, that stone that crushes the kingdoms of this world. In Matthew 16, 18, is the bit where Jesus speaks to Peter and says, you're a pebble, but upon this rock himself, Jesus Christ, I will build my church. That's confirmed in 1 Corinthians 3 because we're told there that the church is built upon Jesus, not upon Peter. Numerous references. It's just a great study. If you've got a concordance, look at at where rock or stone occur and you'll find more often than not they always point in some way to Jesus Christ. The idea about the seven eyes here is seemingly linked to what Isaiah speaks about, the seven spirits of God looking to and fro throughout the earth. And again, the idea of engraving the graving thereof, saith the Lord. The word statutes in the Hebrew has this idea of engraving. What are the statutes? It's the word of God. Again, Double reference here. Calvary and the Day of Atonement seem to both be in view here. Jesus at Calvary was engraved for us. There's a great song on the new Casting Crowns album that speaks of the only scars being in heaven being those that Jesus bears. We won't carry any scars. We won't be there with regret, looking back, going, well, why didn't God allow that? Why God didn't God do that? We, we, we may have regret in regard of missed opportunities, not serving, but we won't have any regret because of the things that have happened. We'll see that God was in every situation, in every circumstance. There was always another in the fire with us. But no, Jesus will be engraved, as it were. And the last verse, in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. Well, both of these are idioms of Israel, the vine, the fig tree. Both speak of the nation of Israel. And they really speak of that time of dwelling safely and at peace in their land. It's a time that's coming. You know, so far these visions have taken us from the statement that God has not finished with Israel. He has a plan. He will again choose Jerusalem, that the Messiah will come. That God is concerned about the nations of this world and will deal with them. But that God will choose Jerusalem. And we've seen Jerusalem effectively chosen and starting to flourish. Prophetically, we've seen that. The Jews have returned to their land. The land of Israel is once again flourishing. And then we start to move on now to the time of tribulation. There will be that time when Israel will eventually, as a nation, turn back to the Lord. When we talk about Israel, be aware always that many people in the church are Jews. It's not as if we have Jews and Christians. That's something that history has kind of made us believe. The church was Jewish. Started off as Jewish. All the disciples, the apostles, were Jewish. The Bible was given to us by the Jews. Even Luke. A lot of people, a lot of commentators say that Luke was a Gentile. No, I don't believe so. For a number of reasons. I believe Luke was very much Jewish. 
The whole Bible given to us by Jews. In fact, the only, the only portion of scripture that was written by a Gentile was in Daniel chapter 4, written by Nebuchadnezzar, the Gentile king. But the scripture has been given to us by the Jews. The church started off as Jewish. Today, there are many Jews that are in the, 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 the church. And of course, this is exactly what Paul said, that through Jesus, God will bring together the Jews, the Gentiles, bond, free, male, female, all together, all one in Christ. But the Jews will come to that place where they are back in their land in peace and safety. And it speaks of the millennium, millennium, the millennial reign of Jesus to come. And notice that we're told, in that day, saith the Lord of hosts. Not just the Lord, but the Lord of hosts. That's the God of heaven's armies who is declaring this. Next week, we're going to have a break from Zechariah just for one week. We're going to have a family service and we'll do something special for the children. And then we'll be back into the next vision. So read ahead in Zechariah. Uh, by all means, read through some of the commentaries and start to see. But it's just an incredible picture that we're seeing developing here of God's love for his people, God's plan for the world. And again, that, that privilege for all those Jews or Gentiles that have been plucked from the fire and that now can call Yeshua Lord. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this opportunity this morning just to look at these scriptures. Lord, these words that were written down some two and a half thousand years ago and yet are so applicable and relevant to us here today. Lord, everything in this chapter speaks of where we are right now. That Satan would love to accuse us. would love to say that we're not worthy, we're undeserving of your grace and of your blessings. Lord, we are acutely aware of our tendency to try and bring our own works before you. And Lord, we thank you again for the reminder this morning that the best we can bring is as filthy rags. That if we are to stand before you, as was shared by Yana this morning in our verse of the week, it's got to be of you. It's got to be the Holy Spirit. can't be our effort. It's all what you do so that you can take the glory. Lord, as we stand before you, may we not stand in our own self-confidence, but purely in the knowledge that your grace was sufficient. There's two words from Ephesians, but God. We thank you for these things, Lord. And just help us to continue to grow in knowledge and grace. And Lord, as we see your plan being fulfilled around the world, with the events that are taking place right now, Lord, as we see these prophecies coming to pass, Lord, may we be more and more in love with our Lord and Savior as we see the day approaching. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.